Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from the series, Behold Your King, a study in the Gospel of Matthew, where we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the God who saves, come to establish his kingdom, reveal himself to us, and provide salvation. Here's Pastor Nick. Uh, Go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in your New Testament, and that's where we're starting our series today. Today is also the first Sunday in Advent, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. This is a time when historically the people of Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ, has prepared our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus But that word Advent, it means arrival. And what we celebrate and what we think about is how Jesus came once as a baby 2,000 years ago, grew up, lived, died, resurrected, and we remember that he has promised that he is coming again. So as we think about the first Advent, our minds also go to the second Advent that is still to come. And so as we prepare our hearts and think about Jesus coming into the world, we're starting a new series this week looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Now, personally, this is my favorite gospel. I'll talk about more about why that is in the coming weeks. We're not going to get too much into that this week. We'll talk about the backstory of Matthew in the weeks to come. Today, we're just going to jump right into the first few verses. So go ahead and open there. The Gospel of Matthew, a series is called Behold Your King, and we'll start in verse 1. But please bow your heads with me as we pray and open God's Word. Lord, as we approach your word, we approach it with a sense of expectation, knowing that you want to speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see things in your word this morning that perhaps we haven't seen or appreciated before. And Lord, we ask most importantly, these things that we study, that we wouldn't just understand them in our minds, but Lord, that they would touch and transform our hearts. Lord, that through this study, you might spur us and transform us even further as we walk with you into the people you desire us to become. And Lord, that this would be part of that work you desire to do in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the summer I turned 16, I took a road trip with my family. We drove up through Yellowstone, and then we followed the Snake River on our way out to Oregon, where we were going to visit my grandparents. That's where they lived in southern Oregon. And I remember that summer sitting around the table, uh, listening to my father, or my grandfather rather, tell stories about Europe and about our family's history there. My grandfather was an immigrant, and his parents had come from Eastern Europe. And during that visit, my grandfather, he pulled out this big black old Bible that his parents had brought from Europe when they came to North America. And he opened up the cover, and he showed me on the very first page were written the names of his parents and their parents, along with the names of the places, the towns where they were born in what is now Ukraine. And I wrote those names down. I remember I I took them back with me here to Colorado. uh, And I started going to the library and using uh, dial-up internet, if you guys remember what that was like, just painfully slow, to try and research, like, you know, what are these places where my family is from? And what language do they speak? And what what are they like? And it stirred up within me this desire and this interest in learning languages and a desire to, to visit and have some connection with Eastern Europe and and my family's roots. And so, you know, it was only a few months after that 
that I became a Christian. I became a committed follower of Jesus. And now my interest in these things about family heritage took on a whole new purpose and a whole new flavor because now I began to have a desire not just to know about those people for my own interests, but now I desire that those people in those places would be able to hear about Jesus and know the gospel and, and believe in Jesus. And so as human beings, you know, I think there's something about us that our ancestry, right, our family of origin is something that means a lot to us. It intrigues us. It's something that people want to know about. You know, Ancestry.com, the website, according to their own website, they, they post on their website that they have over 3 million paying subscribers and that they've made over a billion dollars in revenue by helping people research their family history. To date, over 26 million people have taken DNA tests to show them their genetic ancestry and give them insight into where they came from. There's even a reality TV show called Genealogy Roadshow where they go to major cities and people wait in line for hours in the hopes of talking to a genealogy expert who might be able to give them some insight into their family history. So clearly, ancestry and genealogy is something that a lot of people are interested in and care about. And why is that? I think it's because there's this sense in which we, we believe that who our ancestors were says something about us, right? It gives us a sense of identity. Now, for some of us, that is a good thing, right? If you have a family history that you're proud to be associated with, then it's a good thing. One friend of mine, he's a musician, and he traced his family history back to a famous composer in Poland. Uh, another friend I know, he traced his family history back to Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher from colonial America. And for those people, their ancestry is, is a sense of great pride. They consider it a wonderful heritage that they are carrying on even to this day. But for other people, your family history may not be something that you're proud of. It might be something that you would prefer to distance yourself from and not be identified with because your family history might be full of bad things that nobody wants to remember. You know, for some people, though, family history is more than just a source of pride or shame. It's actually a matter of credentials. So, for example, the Windsor family in England, being a member of that family comes with certain rights and privileges, which no one else can have unless they're part of that family, because the Windsor family is the royal family of England. In order for someone to be king or queen, for example, they have to have the right credentials. And the credentials they need are related to their family history. That They have to be able to prove their ancestry. You know, just this past week, there was a story in the news that was all about credentials and family history. I don't know if you saw this, but the U.S. Congress voted to expel Congressman George Santos because it became apparent that he had been elected to his position based on a series of lies that he had told about his credentials and his family history. So, for example, George Santos claimed that his mother was Jewish and that his ancestors were Jews who had fled persecution in Europe. He, he said that his grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. Well, it turns out, you know, because Jewish people are very much into ancestry, and so they checked into it, and they said, actually, that's not true at all. He's not Jewish whatsoever. And when he was confronted with this evidence, Santos replied by saying, well, when I said that she was Jewish, I didn't mean that she was Jewish. What I meant is that she's Jewish, right? Like she's, she's kind of similar to a Jew in certain ways. That's literally what he said, right? 
Now, during his campaign uh, for Congress, Santos had claimed that he had gone to an elite boarding school in the Bronx, that he had gone to an elite university, and that he had worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. And he presented those things as his credentials. They were the reason why, he said, he was qualified to be in Congress. But each of those schools and each of those businesses has since come out and said, no, he never attended here and he never worked for our company. In other words, when he, he put these things out there, he was lying about his credentials. And when he was asked why he lied about them, he said, yeah, that was a poor choice of words. Um, so credentials are important. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, the writer Matthew, he's going to start this book by telling us about Jesus' credentials. And the purpose and the goal of this is to show us that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he is qualified to do what he came to do. Now, you can imagine the question that people would have had back then when they heard about Jesus is the same question that many people today probably have when they hear about Jesus. The question is, what makes him so special? What makes this Jewish person who lived 2,000 years ago any different than any other Jewish person who lived 2,000 years ago or anybody who has lived since then? Why is he somebody that I should put my faith in and put my trust in? Why should I follow his teachings and not the teachings of someone else? And Matthew is going to answer that question for us right here at the beginning of his book, and he's going to do it by showing us a genealogy. And the big question that this text is going to answer for us is this. Who is Jesus, and why does his family history matter for you and me today? Well, let's dive into that, and we'll see what the answer to that question is. The title of today's message is, The King's Credentials. And here's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see that Jesus' genealogy shows that he's the Messiah, sent to save those separated from God, and bring us into his family. So one more time, I'll give you that summary sentence. I'd love it if you'd write it down, put it in your notes, take that thought with you as you go today. But here's what it is, and we're also gonna, we're gonna use this sentence as our guide for working through these verses. So Jesus' genealogy shows that he is the Messiah, sent to save those separated from God, and bring us into his family. So the first part of that, Jesus' genealogy. Matthew has the extraordinary privilege of getting to be the first person in the New Testament to introduce us to Jesus. Imagine if you were a person living in those days. If you were living at that time when this gospel came out, it had been over 400 years since the last inspired scriptures had been written. And now you get handed a copy of the Gospel of Matthew and you open it to the very first words. How's he going to begin? Right? Famous works of literature begin with iconic opening lines, right? Like, call me Ishmael. Or, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So how will Matthew begin this very important story, the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, if there's one thing that people love about reading the Bible, it's got to be the genealogies. Am I right? Right? It's like nothing beats reading a name, a list of names that you can't pronounce of people you've never met before. Right? It's kind of like reading a Hebrew phone book, and who doesn't want to do that? Right? Like, and for that reason, many people, they skip over 
the genealogy when they read the Gospel of Matthew. They skip these opening verses. They say, okay, yada, yada, yada. And they go down to verse 18, where it starts talking about the birth of Jesus. But here's what I want to tell you. If you skip this genealogy, you will be missing out on some things which are more than just historical, interesting facts. They are important truths which actually have bearing on your life here today. In fact, dare I say that this genealogy here at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is one of my favorite parts of this entire book. And I'm excited to show you why that is. I hope it'll be one of your favorite parts by the time we're done as well. You see, here in this opening statement, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew says something which is actually much more profound than it might seem to you as you give that a cursory reading. You, got, you see, the first readers, as they open up to this opening line, they wouldn't have found this line boring. They would have found it incredibly compelling. When they read this phrase, do you understand? They would have pulled the paper a little bit closer to their eyes. They would have said, hang on a second. This is something I need to slow down and pay attention to. Because what Matthew said there is not just that this is the genealogy of Jesus, but he said that Jesus is the Christ. You see, that word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew term Messiah. Christ, in other words, is not Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Christ, right? That is his title. He is Jesus the Christ, meaning Jesus the Messiah. That word Christ, the word Messiah, they mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one. And essentially, to boil it down, what this means is that Jesus is a king. By the way, that's why we titled this series, Behold Your King. We have been looking, you remember in our study through the servant songs, we've been looking at the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Well, now we come to see the birth of the king, the coming of the king. Jesus presents, or Matthew presents Jesus to us as a king. But listen, not just any king. We'll talk about this more in just a second. But first, try to understand just how scandalous and surprising and compelling what Matthew says here actually is. Because Jesus is saying, or sorry, Matthew is saying that Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter from Galilee, is actually a king. He's the king of the Jews. Now, somebody might hear that and they might say, Listen, you can't just say that. You have to give the evidence for it to substantiate that claim. To which Matthew would say, I know. Here's what it is. Let me give you his genealogy. Let me prove to you that he is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Now, in other words, we today tend to think of genealogies as being something boring and uninteresting. But please understand that in Jesus' time, these Jewish people, they would have read these opening verses with an incredible amount of interest. Rather than causing them to yawn with boredom, these words would have caused their hearts to beat faster, their eyes to grow wider, because what Matthew is claiming here, if it's true, it's something which absolutely changes everything. And this genealogy is the proof of whether this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king, can actually be true. So let's look into it. Jesus' genealogy shows, that's the next part of our sentence, that he is the Messiah. So it says in verse 1, I'll just read the whole verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When it comes to telling the story of Jesus, Matthew doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. 
Instead, he says, look, if you really want to understand who Jesus is, you can't just start with Jesus. You have to go back. You have to go way back, all the way back to Abraham. You see, if you read the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, here's what you'll notice. You'll notice that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it speaks broadly about the history of the world in general. But then, starting in chapter 12, the focus of the book of Genesis goes from very broad to very narrow. So narrow, in fact, that it focuses on just one man and his family. Rather than talking about the world in general, it focuses on one man named Abraham. Abraham was a pagan man who lived in a city full of pagan people. And in that sense, Abraham was not anybody special. He was not unique. He was just like everybody else. But what made Abraham different is that Abraham received a calling from God. God spoke to Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, if you will take my hand and follow me, then I will bless you in an incredible way. And here's what God told him. He said, I will make of you a great nation. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And from that point on, the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is not focused on telling us the story of the world in general, Rather, it's focused on telling us the story of a particular family line. We might call it the line of promise. So for example, Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, but the story doesn't follow both of his sons. It only follows one of his sons, Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, but the story doesn't follow both of their stories. It only follows the family line of Jacob. And in many cases, this line of promise, it isn't carried on through the oldest son in the family every time, as was the custom in that day. But instead, oftentimes, God chooses a younger son to be the one through whom this special line of promise will be carried on. Now, what is that line of promise? What exactly is it building up to? And what is it all about? What this line of promise is building up to is this promised person, the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That term, the seed, is a really important term that's used several times throughout the Bible. Most importantly for our case today, it's used all the way back in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. At that time where we read about how sin and death first entered into human history. And at that time, at that moment, God made a promise. He promised that he would send a person whom he called the seed of a woman. And the seed of a woman would come. He would crush the head of Satan, and he would redeem the world from the curse of sin and death. And so the story that the Bible tells, starting in the book of Genesis, is the story of this person who would one day come, And this person became known as the Messiah. Now, I told you earlier that the Messiah essentially means that he would be a king. But you need to understand, it's not just any king. You see, even though this king was going to come through Israel, the Messiah was not only coming for Israel. Even though he would be the king of the Jews, the Messiah was going to be the savior of the world. And for thousands of years, 
People were waiting and hoping for the time when God would finally send this promised person. Through the prophets, God had told the people who the Messiah would be and how to recognize him when he came. There were some very specific criteria that they were to look for. In other words, it couldn't just be anyone. This Messiah, God had told them, he would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be a descendant of David, the king. He would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And he would be born through a miraculous virgin birth. And this genealogy that we have here in the Gospel of Matthew, what it shows us is Jesus' credentials. It shows us that Jesus meets the criteria to be the Messiah. And so now Matthew's going to walk us through Jesus' family lineage all the way from Abraham through David up to Jesus. He says in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now the inclusion of Judah in Jesus' family tree is really important. You see, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Abraham. Judah was, or sorry, um, let me say that again. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. He's also known by a special name that was given to him by God, which is the name Israel. And Jacob's 12 sons, they became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of Jacob's life, there's an interesting thing we read in the book of Genesis, chapter 49. It says that Jacob gathered his 12 sons around him at the end of his life, and he prophesied over each of them. And when it came time for Jacob to prophesy over his son Judah, here's what he said in Genesis 49, verse 10. He said, The scepter, that's a sword, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That's an incredible prophecy. You see, what it means is that this promised person, the Savior, promised to Abraham, he's going to be a king, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. And he's going to come through the tribe of Judah. So the fact that this genealogy of Jesus tells us that he comes from the tribe of Judah, it's one more important key in establishing that Jesus has the credentials to be the Messiah. But it goes even deeper than that. Let's show you our sentence one more time. The next part of our sentence is this. Jesus' genealogy shows that he's the Messiah sent to save those separated from God. You know, they say that you can choose your friends and you can choose your pets, but you don't get to choose your family. But listen, what if you could, right? Like, what if you could choose and pick the people that you would be related to? What kind of people would you choose? Maybe you would choose wealthy people, right? Maybe you'd choose good-looking people, intelligent people, famous people, people of good moral fabric. But what's interesting about Jesus, not only was Jesus God, but if Jesus was God, which he was, what that means is that he was the only person in human history who actually did have the opportunity to pick his family members. He got to choose who he would be related to. And so as we read through this genealogy, we're going to see some of the people who Jesus chose to be related to. And I want you to think about what this tells us about him. It says this in verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez, by Zerah, 
and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, Matthew's pattern in giving this genealogy is that he's tracing the lineage of Jesus through the fathers. Notice Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And then notice what he does, though, in verse 3. He mentions that Judah had two children, Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, is what he says. Now, Tamar is the name of a woman. She's the mother of Perez. Now, why would Matthew mention the name of this woman in this genealogy, which is focused on tracing family heritage through male lineage? See, ordinarily in the ancient world, women were not included in genealogies. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke also gives us a genealogy of Jesus, but in Luke's genealogy, he only mentions the names of men. So let me ask you this. Why would Matthew deviate here, not only from the standard formula of his time, why would he also deviate even from his own formula that he's already using? In fact, here's what you're going to see as we study through this genealogy. You're going to see that there are a total of five women who are listed in this genealogy. And what that means, if he lists five women, is that Matthew does not list all of the women who were in Jesus' family history. He only lists five specific women. And that's where it gets really interesting because if you look at who these women were, here's what you're going to wonder. You're going to wonder, why did Matthew choose these women in particular to highlight and to mention in the story of Jesus? The five women who Jesus mentions, or who Matthew mentions in this genealogy, they are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And if you go and look at who these women were, you find their stories in the Bible, here's what you're going to find. Four of these women had bad reputations. Three of them were Gentiles. Can you imagine Gentiles in the ancestry of the Jewish Messiah? Three of these five women had committed adultery. Three of them got pregnant out of wedlock. You see, these are the kinds of family secrets that many families have, but most families don't like to talk about. And so let me ask you this. Why would God choose to highlight these particular people and these particular situations when he tells us about Jesus' family tree, his, his uh, credentials and his qualifications? Why mention these people? Why not just ignore them or sweep their stories under the rug? You see, there are plenty of people who are not mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. So why mention these women in particular? Furthermore, again, if Jesus is the only person in history who got to choose his family members, why would he choose these people and then tell us about them? What, why, what does that tell us about Jesus? And what does that mean for you and me today? Listen, the common thread amongst these five women is that for one reason or another, they were separated from God and from the people of God. Either they were separated because of something they had done, some sin they had committed. Some of them would have been separated because of things which were done to them. Others of them would have been separated because of who they were as Gentiles and foreigners, separated from the people of God. 
So let's take a look at, at a few of these women just this morning who are listed in verses 3 and verse 5. The first woman in this genealogy is Tamar. Tamar, it says, by whom Judah had a son named Perez. Now remember, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Judah became the father of the tribe of Judah. And so you might assume that if Judah was chosen to be the tribe from which the Messiah would come, then Judah must have been a pretty awesome person, right? He must have been a very godly person if he would be chosen by God to be the one through whom this line of promise would flow. Except when you read his story in Genesis chapter 38, what you find is that just the opposite is true. Judah was a person who made a lot of mistakes, a lot of drama, and a lot of trauma. Look at what it says there in Genesis chapter 38. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll summarize the story for you. The first thing we're told about Judah is that even though Judah was raised in a believing family, Judah at one point left home and he went to live with the pagans. He ran off with a friend of his named Hira the Adulamite. Now let's put it this way. This guy, Hira the Adulamite, he's kind of the opposite of an accountability partner. Whatever an accountability partner is, this guy's the opposite of that, right? He says, hey, let's go. And so they run off together. He leaves behind in the believing community. He goes and lives with the pagan Canaanites and Judah marries a woman named Shua. Now with Shua, this Canaanite woman, Judah has three sons. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah, which is kind of a, a bummer of a name, right, for a boy. But that's his name. But notice, none of these sons are mentioned in this genealogy. And Judah's wife, whose name is Shua, well, she's not the same person who's mentioned in the genealogy, is she? Here we're told that Judah had a child with someone named Tamar. So who's Tamar and how did she get in this story? Well, here's what happened. See, Judah's oldest son named Ur, he followed in his dad's footsteps. He married a pagan Canaanite woman. That pagan Canaanite woman's name was Tamar. And Judah's son, Ur, he was such a wicked and ungodly person that the Lord actually ended his life prematurely. He ended his life early, which meant that Ur's wife, Tamar, became a widow. And the custom of that time was that if a man died and he didn't have an heir, a child, then his widow would then be given in marriage to his next younger brother, and their first child together would count as that deceased man's child as his heir for his property and for his family line. Now, the purpose of this was, of course, to protect the family line, but also it was to protect the widow, to protect her from being destitute and not having someone to care for her. So here's what happened. Tamar then is given in marriage to Judah's next youngest son, his middle son, Onan. But Onan, what does he do? He abused Tamar. And as a result of that abuse, God chose to end his life prematurely as well. So now two of Judah's three sons have been wicked people, and Tamar has now been widowed twice over, and she's been abused and mistreated. And then on top of everything else, Judah then refused to give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar in marriage, even though that's what the law required him to do. So here's Tamar. She's been abused. She's been widowed twice. She's been done wrong now by Judah. She has no children, no family, and Judah, the one who's supposed to be responsible to take care of her as a widow, he has left her to fend for herself. And so Tamar decided to take things into her own hands. She dressed up like a prostitute. 
she went and stood by the side of the road at the exact time when she knew that Judah would be passing by. She wore a veil, as prostitutes did in those days, so that he couldn't see her face. And as a result of their union, Tamar got pregnant with a child, with Judah's child. In fact, she got pregnant with twins. And at that point, Judah was trapped. He had no choice but to take care of Tamar and those two babies. Now that story is messy. It's terrible, right? Like everyone involved sinned. Everyone acted wrongly. There's no hero in this story. Nothing good came out of this story except those two little babies who were loved by God. And in God's incredible providence, it was through one of those two babies, through Perez, who was born of a Gentile woman through this awful situation that the Redeemer and the Messiah came into the world. The other women mentioned in the section in verse 5 are Rahab and Ruth. Both of these women, they're both Gentiles. They're not Jews. They came to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God. They were both incredible women of faith. And yet, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab was a prostitute and Ruth was a foreigner. Again, if Matthew is only going to tell us about five of the many women in Jesus' family tree, why these five? Considering their stories, considering their identities, these are the names of some these are the names that some people would have been inclined to be ashamed of or inclined to cover up or to hide. And yet, these are the people that Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses to highlight and emphasize in telling us about Jesus. Why? It's because Matthew wants to show us not only is Jesus the Messiah, he wants to show us what the Messiah came to do. Here's what he came to do. The Messiah came to save those who are separated from God. This had been God's plan and purpose from the beginning. This is what God was doing with Abraham when he called him out of paganism, when he called him into a relationship with him. It's exactly what God did in the lives of each of these women who are listed in this genealogy. They were separated from God, and yet God brought them in to his redemptive story. And by his grace, he gave them a new identity and a new destiny. And here's the thing I want you to know today. What Jesus did for them is the same thing that he wants to do for you today as well. Because every single one of us, our default condition, our natural state is that we are separated from God, both because of things that we have done in our sinful actions and because of who we are in our sinful nature. But the good news of the gospel is that God, because he loves you, he sent Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, to be your redeemer. You know what it means to redeem something? To redeem something means that you take something which is broken, something which is destined for destruction, and you lovingly rescue it. You give it a new future. You give it a new purpose. You transform it by working on it in order to make it into something beautiful. And that is what Jesus came to do for you and me as well. You see, for people like us, who by nature are separated from God, Jesus came to remove the barriers that stood between you and God. Jesus came to redeem you by doing for you what you could not do for yourself. He lived the life that you should have lived, a life of perfect obedience to God's will. And Jesus died the death 
that you deserve to die. On a cross, Jesus took the judgment for your sins. He was cut off so that you who were separated could be brought near. That's the good news of the gospel, that God loves you and he sent Jesus to redeem you. The seed of the woman who would defeat Satan, sin, and death. The seed of Abraham through whom people of every nation of the earth would be blessed. Not only is Jesus the redeemer of our souls, but also know this, Jesus is the redeemer of our situations. Do you know that? Just like he did with Judah, he can redeem your mistakes, your sins, your failures, and your errors. He can bring beauty out of ashes. If he did that for them, I want you to know that he can certainly do it for you in your life as well. If you will put the tangled strands of your life into his hand, he can take them and weave them into a beautiful tapestry. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence, which is this, that Jesus' genealogy, it shows us that he's the Messiah sent to save those separated from God and to bring us into his family. It says at the end of this section, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So far in our study, what we've seen is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he's the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, the promised Savior King for the entire world. But here's the question. Why does Jesus' family history matter for you and me today? And here's why. Because with each of these people listed in this genealogy, not only did God redeem their stories, but he also brought them into his family. And you know what that means? If there was room in his family for people like them, then you know what? That means there's also room for people like you and me, us today. What God did for them, he also wants to do for you. He wants to redeem your life and bring you into his family. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it says this, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, that's the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who he says were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Here's how Paul the Apostle explains it in his letter to the Galatians. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. He adopts you into his family. And as a member of his family, you have rights and privileges that those outside the family don't get to have. You have access to the Father. You have an inheritance that is imperishable that no one can ever take away from you. And the way to receive that gift, we're told right here in John chapter 1, is by believing in Jesus as your Savior and receiving him as your Lord. And as you walk with him by faith, as you trust him enough to do what he says, you will continue to experience his redeeming power in your life, transforming your life into something beautiful, which has eternal purpose as he leads you into the future that he has prepared for you, no longer on the outside, but now as a member of his family forever. You see, you can experience that today by putting your trust and faith in him. Because Jesus' genealogy shows us that he's the Messiah, sent to save those separated from God and bring us into his family. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. 
You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 